I want to start just with a small caveat that all the companies that I've worked for until now are B2B companies, are tech or high-tech companies selling mid-market or higher, um, and have all been primarily driven, the revenue driver in the company is the sales team. Um, so this is not the same as a B2C answer, and it's not even the same for you know, a, a, a B2B company that marketing is the main revenue driver, like an yeah. online sign-up play. Right. My role, I see marketing as essentially the goal of marketing is twofold. The first thing is to position the market, position the company within the market in the best possible way, to be the vanguard, to define what is said about the company, um, what is known about the company, who talks about the company, um, everything from messaging to branding through to tangible assets like websites and videos. That is the number one goal of marketing is getting the message out there to the right audience with the right message through the right channels. The second goal of marketing, and in my mind, this is both just as important, is lead generation and business revenue generation for the company itself. Mm -hmm. um, generating leads, opportunities, qualifying them, understanding which are the best channels to bring these in, um, working very, very, very closely with sales to make sure that the right things get through and the wrong, th wrong things don't. Um, these two functions are parallel. Without one, you cannot have the other. A marketing team which only talks about branding and misses KPIs, in my mind, misses the point. And on the flip side, if you're just lead generation and you're not actually controlling the market message, then you're not doing it right, in my opinion, either. When, when you're sitting in that pre-seed stage versus the seed stage versus the A stage, can you help our listeners basically understand the, the way that, that founders should be thinking about marketing across those different you know, stages of maturity? So fundamentally, the function that we uh, defined at the very beginning does not change. Okay. The execution and the strategies used to achieve those two goals may change dramatically. Um, so to give you a small example, when yeah. you are pre-seed on the getting the messaging out there, um, by the way, it's never too early ever to start thinking about messaging, definition, how you define yourself. Are you talking to an existing market? Are you building a new one? How important is education? Is online going to be a, a, a viable channel? Is analyst going to be a viable channel? These conversations should be had no matter when you start, pre-seed, series A, seed, it, it makes no difference. But once you've had those discussions, the, the execution in pre-seed looks very, very different. So getting your messaging out there pre-seed might be cold outreach to uh, bloggers, industry experts, to analysts, um, pitching local reporters if you believe you've got a really, really strong story. Um, but often pre-seed, you're not going to hear that many people kind of wanting to hear your story. Um, on the lead generation side pre-seed it's a lot of manual work um, i would probably and unless you're sure about online i wouldn't look at online spend i would do um, a lot of outreach yourself um, looking at connections who you can speak to building up the initial customer base from um, you know connections of connections or groups that you're in or just cold outreach um, often at the very very early stage before you have anything going for you you need to put in the hours, you need to put in the effort in order to achieve the same thing, which later on you can able to establish and essentially build for with a budget. Mm -hmm. um, 
once you're in that seed, sta seed stage, once you've got initial capital to work with, in my mind, there's a lot of experimentation that you can then start to be. Okay. You need to have an allocation on the lead generation side. You need to have an allocation that you can test, you know, LinkedIn campaigns, Facebook campaigns, Google campaigns. You can test sponsored newsletters, sponsored website, uh, webinars, um, maybe even banner ads, whatever, depending on your audience type and where right. your, your channel is available. My, my general goal is if you have an understanding, which you are, often companies don't, but if you have an understanding of your metrics at that stage, you want to be spending... I would say 2x, um, you know, customer value on any one channel. Um, or maybe depending on 5x acquisition cost, if you don't know yet your customer value. But if you know you're, you're paying normally $1,000 um, for a customer, or let's go smaller because at that stage, it's often less. Let's say you're spending $200 on a customer. You yeah. should be willing to spend $1,000 on LinkedIn or Google to see if there's anything there. And the yeah. same is true with sponsored newsletters, uh, sponsored webinars and anything that kind of falls into that domain also at that stage you may find industry experts who are willing to make one or two introductions if you can pitch your product well enough to them um, i would say on the flip side on the messaging side once you have your seed round you can start doubling down on who you are and who you are who you want to be seen as within the market um, that's normally the time post-seed where you move away from your Wix landing page website to build your first proper website. Um, the website, depending on the function within the organization itself, is either, you know, if you're enterprise enterprise, then your website is basically a glorified brochure or business card. If your website, if you're mid-market, then your website's going to be a, a lead generation tool. Um, if you're you know, low level, you may actually have automatic signups through your website. So depending right. on what the function of the website is, you will obviously have to build it differently. But ultimately, no matter how you're building it, it's a great time to focus on your messaging and make sure that you are saying something that other people in the market either are not saying or even better, cannot say. Mm -hmm. If you are going to go with a tagline that other people say, you will get lost and you will get lost very, very quickly. Um, so this is normally post-seed, pre-series A, um, in my opinion, when you hit yeah. kind of that first fork in the road when it comes to marketing messaging, which is, do I build my own category or do I fit into an existing category? Mm. Um, and I can talk through previous companies and experiences we've had. Um, yeah. It's something which is, it's one of the biggest decisions to make. The decision basically comes down to if a category already exists, then your challenge is one of differentiation, right? which is often very, very challenging, but the category already exists and is somewhat easier to sell into. Yeah. If you are creating a new category, then this requires a lot more education. But if you define it properly, you get to own the space. Um, and I can't talk too deeply into what we're currently doing at Identic because work in progress and sure. it's, it's going exceptionally well until now, um, but I don't want to give too much away on this podcast, sure. but I can talk a little bit about what we did in the last few companies. So Feedvisor, for example, um, to give a 30 second background, we were an Amazon repricer. That means if you're selling things as a retailer on Amazon, which hundreds of thousands of people are, we automatically set your prices based on market conditions to maximize your profits. Right. Now, there were a bunch of repricers out there. So it would have been 
easier for us to come forward and say, we're a better repricer. We fall in the same bucket as everyone else. When you're considering repricing, consider us as well. Yeah. That would have been somewhat the easier decision. What we decided intentionally to do differently is to, by definition, force a new category. So we kept on saying they are rule-based repricing. We are algorithmic repricing. Mm. And these are the days before AI was a buzzword. Right. So now it's a, you'd say an AI repricer, but now everyone says AI repricer. So now you need a new differentiator if you're building a whole new category. And therefore, the messaging that we could go to the market with was, great, you've tried all the rule-based repricings. Some of them work and some of them don't. Now let's introduce you to a whole new category called algorithmic mm. repricing. And Got we it. actually stole quite liberally from Salesforce, the very, very olden days, they used to have this no software cloud logo. Yeah. We went with a no rules logo to make it very nice. clear that we are not the same. Um, at, at Law Geeks, we also had a, you know, we faced a similar challenge. Um, there were document readers, there were AI document readers out there. We moved very quickly away from we're another document AI to yeah. contract review automation. And we mm -hmm. spent a lot of time and a lot of effort building a new category of contract review automation, yeah. legal AI, yeah. as opposed to um, the traditional document reviewing um, text. I think yeah. very early on, you know, I think before I got there, the messaging was, you know, we're an AI that can read a document and let you know which things in it are good and which things are bad and X, Y, Z. There was a long explanation as to how the technology works, but there was a lot less focus on value. Um, yeah. Very, very early on in our you know, in our marketing journey, we shifted that to, we read and review contracts faster and better than a human. Yeah. That was it. And, and getting that elevator pitch down is very much part of this process. Um, I can tell how, you from, how, sorry, how do you ahead. get, how do you get there? I think is a, is a really interesting, you know, question to explore. How do you go through that process of, of finding the category and finding the right words to use? So it's an excellent question. It's, it's, there's never a short answer because by definition, this is a process that can take weeks and sometimes months. Right. Um, it's understanding what's out there, really understanding what's out there. What are your competitors saying? Knowing what, what bucket they put themselves in and seeing what niches available are for you to kind of carve out and say, this is a new space. Yeah. Beyond that, one of the first exercises that I always do with any startup I work with is in an Excel spreadsheet or in a, you build three columns. Okay. You build pain, features, value. And every single time I have run this exercise with a, a young startup, especially a more, with a more technical founding team, right. um, they end up putting in the value a whole bunch of feature things. We are... We are uh, are, we are 65% more accurate. That's a value. Mm. Um, to which my answer is, no, it's not. It's, it's simply not. Yeah. It's a feature. <laughs> um, we, we process X in Y is a feature. And the way to balance that always, the way to challenge if you're really focusing on a value or if you're focusing on a feature, is can you counteract it? Can you oppose it with a pain? Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, ah, I wish this was 65% more accurate. Right. And if that's the case, then it's got to be the opposite. So okay. 
the pain can be um, this process is frustrating, takes too long and costs me too much money. And then your value is um, frustration free, nice and quick, doesn't cost anything. And the features is just how you're able to achieve the value. Um, but once you can define the values, what I would then focus on is going through those values and possibly the features, but mainly those values and finding which of the values here other people in your industry cannot say, not aren't currently using, not, uh, well, they might, they might say it, but we can do it better. Better is, is never a value by itself. It's what are the values you have in your last column here that other people simply cannot say, even if they wanted to. Hmm. Um, so I can give you a, a simple example. You know, back sure. in the law, law Geeks days, one of the competitors that we were actually facing were uh, human capital. You know, right. we were in AI to review contracts. There were people out there who ran huge um I mean, it's, I would say warehouses, but it's more virtual, you know, loads of individuals all over the world, but you send them a contract, they review it and get it back to you. Um, right. They were simply unable to say, you know, one hour turnaround time. They, they, they couldn't if they wanted to, just because human capital and we were a machine. So we were able to say that and therefore we could come out with the only dot, 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 one hour turnaround mm. time was one of our core values. Mm. Um, there were other people out there, you know, again, on the law geek side, you know, that, that didn't know their accuracy numbers or their efficiency numbers. We could come out and say 92% accurate. Again, this itself was, was not a value. 92% accurate isn't a core value itself, but the confidence in knowing that your contracts are reviewed at a higher level than a human right. is a value. Right. So we were the only people that could in the market say, we can categorically, systematically prove, so to speak. We can give evidence that backs up the fact that we review contracts better than a human. And again, this is one of the things that our competitors simply couldn't say. Mm -hmm. um, and this is kind of how you start to shape your initial value statements. And, and the larger question of, do I build my own category or you know, do, do I, I fit, in? Yeah. fit in? It depends on what the category looks like. Who are the incumbents? What are they currently doing? Is there right. an industry leader? Sometimes right. if there's no industry leader, you can jump in and take that spot. Right. Um, other times there might be one or two big boys and you might want to carve a different niche for yourself. And then, you know, once you've done that exercise, how do you think about testing it, you know, and then seeing if it actually resonates with with users with customers right because you can perceive something but it could be very different than the way the the market actually you know look looks for value yes i, I completely agree um this is somewhat subjective but there are okay. three ways in the past that i would normally test a message yeah number one talking to customers i think this is so fundamental i think that every every ceo with almost no exception, yeah. should have customer calls at least two or three times a week. Yeah, There's nothing more valuable. Um, and marketing as well, like record and listen to your customer calls. If you're yeah. using Zoom anyway, record customer calls, play them back, listen to them, see what works and see what didn't. You can't always tell in the moment, but afterwards you definitely can. C if can you have Gong help with that? You know, with Gong definitely can. Gong's a great yeah. tool. I've, I've used it in a few companies. Um, 
the restriction on Gong is just one of price. Right. And if you're pre-seed, the idea of committing to right. a, a cost like that for an annual subscription from day one is difficult. Sure. Um, especially if you only have one or two people in the team or maybe one salesperson. Right. Um, and if you can use Zoom recordings for a fraction of the price, but it's absolutely, you lose all the convenience that gongs, the gongs bring you. Yeah. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is run it by industry experts. Um, they don't have to be the expert in the industry, but every industry has its range of bloggers and experts and opinion leaders who like to be, you want to hit the sweet spot where you're not talking to the biggest of the biggest. They, they have no time of day for you. You're not talking yeah. to the smallest that have no real impact or a solid understanding of the range of solutions out there. You yeah. want to talk to the mid people who want to have something new, want to be the first people to talk about something, but yeah. have enough industry knowledge to say to you, hey, so-and-so did that two years ago. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, that's that's clever. I don't know how different it is. And ask yeah. them for honest feedback. Yeah. Um, the third thing, by the way, is, is very, very simple. If your audience is online, LinkedIn or Facebook, run very simplistic ads just yeah. with the value statement um, and see and build a very simple landing page on Unbounce and just see what gets clicks, what gets leads. Um, again, this varies depending on who the audience is, but running bad ads is not a problem if you're not trying to use it to generate leads. You're doing it to right. see of these three sentences Research, which yeah. works best. Right. Um, now, it sounds like a lot of this at the seed and pre-seed stage kind of falls on the shoulder of the CEO because that's usually who's having these calls with uh, customers and you know having in interactions with industry experts. Um, when do you think it would make sense to potentially bring on support uh, for marketing and, and sort of you know, take it off the CEO's shoulders? So the truth is, my, my general opinion is the minute you want to either know or tell, know what the market is thinking or tell the market a message is the time that you should be thinking about bringing in marketing. Yeah. Sometimes the right thing to do is bringing in a CMO experienced person very, very early right. um, who can own the entire thing. And by the way, take those conversations off the shoulders of the CEO um, yeah. and use a different set of skills. Sometimes right. it makes sense to bring in somebody more junior, more in the trenches to start building basic marketing messaging and then working very closely together with the CEO. That really depends on, again, what the opportunity is, what the company is, whether or not you have active customers or not. Um, but I think that I would, I would actually disagree that these things would normally fall on the shoulders of the CEO. Okay. I think that they do by default because the CEO in a startup company takes on the marketing function, the same right. way that they often take on support or customer success or, I don't know, right. IT. But right. is it the best value for the CEO to be also the IT guy in the company? Probably no. not. So I would say as soon as the marketing becomes either taking as much, enough of his time that it's valuable to bring in somebody to take it over. And by the way, that's maybe when you bring in somebody junior or yeah. when he's aware enough of the fact that it can be done X times better with a, an expert in marketing. And then you bring in somebody more senior. Um, ideally, you know, once you've hit 10 people, five people possibly within the company, 
Um, yeah. Someone should own the marketing function that's not the CEO. It yeah. might be uh, the salesperson, it might be VP sales, it might be CRO, but yeah. it's, it's a lot of work early stage and it's something which often needs you to take a step back and think critically and strategically. Um, and that's something which early stage CEOs don't always have the luxury to be able to do. Right. So, you know, th- there's sort of this uh, mythical unicorn that I think a lot of companies are hoping to find where someone who's super creative and has like the art of marketing, but also someone who's super, you know, technical and can execute and, and manage and do all the analytics. So, you know, how do you think about blending those two? Should you take an agency for one of the two? And, you know, how do you sort of make sure that there's some sort of unification um, between the, the strategy and the creative versus the way that it's, you know, executed and tracked? So I, I have a very divisive opinion on this. I know that my opinion is not agreed by the majority of people that I speak to, but I think good, and this is going to sound weird, but good marketing is boring. I think that marketing is by definition a function, a machine that you can almost build input, machine, output. Okay. The input could be visitors. The output could be leads and the machine is a website. Okay. Uh, the input, you know, if you're at a conference, then the input is people walking around. The machine is the booth. The output is opportunities, conversations. Right. Uh, and, and every function within marketing can be broken down to that boring ass machine. Give, okay. Can be given numbers, conversions, etc. In my mind, 80 to 90% of the best, most successful marketing departments and functions out there have incredibly strong execution, mm-hmm. an incredibly tight uh, view on inputs, machines, outputs, understanding metrics, understanding conversion rates, understanding you know, ACV, uh, understanding cost per lead. You, know, you should have very, very early on a basic understanding of, okay, this is what a customer costs me. This is what I get from a customer. Ideally, I want to bring this number down, this number up. Like that is the most boring way I can explain marketing to somebody without mentioning colors or ads or branding or font or strategy or anything. Okay. I think that with that said, if you have a brilliant brand, it helps significantly. And beyond that, one of the roles of marketing, yes, is the strategy and the messaging and the branding. But strategy, messaging, and branding are easier to outsource than the execution. And therefore, I think there is because they are more fun and they require a more creative spirit. And sometimes if you are in the weed looking at spreadsheets all day long, there is a value of taking somebody else and saying, okay, build me, build me a brand, research, come to me with, with five, 10 different positioning options, come to me with 50 different you know, slogans and a whole bunch of different logo options and colors and, and right. build a messaging map for me that then we can discuss and debate. Okay. But bringing somebody in and saying to them, you know, understand our acquisition cost, our cost per lead, our customer value, lifetime value. Um, th- that's something which has to be part of the core DNA of the company. Okay. Um, and while you can outsource small parts of that, let's say online lead generation. Yeah. You wouldn't outsource the machine itself because yeah. that is the, the company's core competence. 
uh, and any any marketer out there should and i don't mean brand brand new startups so they don't know this information yet but any yeah. marketer out there that has a rolling machine who has a machine that generates opportunities generates leads um, should understand you know off the top of their head the basic numbers that build what's a success and what is a failure so to give you yeah. a really boring example Sure. I mean, I'm not going to talk my own numbers now because I think that may be trade secrets, but I know exactly what I would pay for an opportunity. Yeah. If you reach out to me tomorrow on LinkedIn and say, I am an amazing marketing opportunity generator. I can right. do this. I can do that. I can bring you X number of leads. It's never an emotional conversation. It's right. always, okay, what's the cost? Yeah. What's the projected benefit? Right. Divide those numbers, then I get my cost per opportunity. Right. And above that, is there any other upside, like branding right. or anything else that I'm, I'm willing to bump this number up for? Right. But when you have marketers who've been in the game for a while and these numbers are unclear, it's very hard yeah. for them to make these decisions. I see. Um, on, on the flip side, there's on the branding side, of course, there are better branding agencies, worse branding agencies. And if you can build the messaging in-house, even better. But if not, it's easier to hire somebody either internally or externally to help you build and craft the messaging and the branding and, and keep the core competency of marketing internally. So to, to go back to my very first thing, I would say execution is 80, even 90% and creativity is maybe 10 to 20. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a spectrum of, of opinion on that that question. So thanks for, for sharing your own. Um, I guess there's this uh, best practice that I'm hearing, which is you don't really want to take a real branding agency until you kind of have product market fit and you have a little bit more, more traction, like Atreo, for example, typically wants to come in post series A and, you know, kind of work uh, with it with a bigger budget and a bigger scope. But if you're at the seed stage uh, and, you know, you think that there is a value in, in having a branding agency come in to sort of help you, uh, think through your your earlier messaging. How much should you pay, and and sort of is it even worth it at that stage, or or is it potentially uh, an an overly expensive cost versus versus the value that you'll you'll get at that stage? That's an interesting one. I I would say very early stage. As long as your brand is not hurting you, um, I would agree completely with the statement that you shouldn't be bringing in a really big branding agency until you have a better idea of product market fit. Okay. Or at least you have enough customers that can tell you why they bought the product um, and have been using it and see the value on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, the, the reason why is actually very, very simple. You could be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, possibly more, making an incredibly powerful message. Right. And all of your customers say, but that's not what I use you for. And you won't know that until you're at the stage where you have enough customers, enough conversations, enough of a, of a strong product market fit indicator to know, okay, this is the pain that we solve. This is the value that we bring. Um, and I can tell you from my point of view, there are often times when companies don't always know the real value until they've got enough customers under their belt that turn around and say, this is why I love your product. And often the CEO can be like, yeah, but that's not what I built it for it doesn't matter um it, the value has to be seen from the customer's eyes not the technical point of view mm -hmm. um so i would agree 
you don't want to bring an agency in until you have that, until you have a very confident as to exactly what that is. With that said, if your brand is hurting you, then as in, let me give you an example, if you're selling high level enterprise and you have a one page website that makes you look like you're two people in a garage, right. um, or you are selling to you know, a, a B2C play or a beta small business play and your website conversion is horrible, then for all of these things, it makes sense to go through a branding exercise. Yeah. I would, in terms of budget, it's challenging to answer, but yeah. my estimation would be 10 to $30,000, which is a wide, broad spectrum for that for the kind project. Of first, yeah, yeah, for a project. And then what do you think about taking like, uh, well, I guess this is a two-part question, but um, you know, typically you see the the constellation at, at the, the seed is you have a, a CEO and then one or two technical co-founders. Mm-hmm. Um, given that building a brand, marketing, messaging is just increasing in importance, you know, in Israel, if we want to build these multi-billion dollar outcomes, you know, the earlier you start to build that brand and that, that, that marketing, uh, the higher probability you can kind of get to the, the IPO or, or go all the way. Do you think that we'll see more marketing co-founders over the next cycle and sort of that will become almost a, a critical part of the founding team to give investors and also the company the, the best chance for success? And then the follow-up question there is, you know, what about sort of marketing advisory and sort of bringing that on as sort of a critical piece of your advisory board from day one? Interesting. So two, two different questions, uh, actually with two very different answers. Okay. Regarding the first one, I would say having a marketing person as, as a core member of the founding team yeah. is exceptionally valuable for companies where, where marketing is the revenue driver. Okay. For example, apps, B2C software, um, small business software, um, anything where you expect to have a very low touch point with it to your customers mm. and it's either exclusively self-service or mainly self-service right then it brings a lot of value to have a marketing person as part of the founding team either a ceo with marketing experience or even a dedicated cmo from day one yeah if you have a company where either more enterprise more high level b2b where sales yeah. is going to be the revenue driver right then the role of VP sales is often taken on by the CEO, but right. having as part of very early hire or founding team, a salesperson makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, either way, if you have the opportunity to bring on either on the sales or marketing, somebody great early on, take it. I think the biggest challenge by far in the Israeli industry today is finding the not just great people, but the right people for the right companies. Um, there are so few world-class um, professionals out there, and they, for obvious reasons, you know, once they start somewhere, they new, 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 usually stay there for three, five, sometimes even 10 years. Right. So if you have the opportunity early on to bring on someone like that, even if it's six months early, even possibly if it's a year early, it's yeah. often worth taking that leap so that when the company's at the stage to take full advantage of that, 
you have somebody that has you know brings everything to the table and it's it takes a level of confidence to know that you're going to get there and to make sure that i don't think this person you know let's say you bring in somebody with heavy enterprise sales experience sometimes it, it, it takes guts to say okay the product isn't fully enterprise ready yet but the minute it is and we think we'll be there in x months we're going to want to start selling it hard to enterprise this is an enterprise sales guy if for the next six months he just makes warm introductions and helps us mature the product it's worth that investment to make sure in six months time you have somebody that can fly when it comes to you know the future growth of the company and then on the advisory point yes so i think actually advisory boards and advisory roles is very very valuable because we were saying earlier that you know the break between the creative side of marketing and the messaging and the the execution side of marketing the using an advisory role getting somebody on the board that can help for a few hours a month right would give you the scope number one to use those times on whatever of those two needs your strength so if for example you are hiring um, a junior marketing team pitting them with a senior advisor who can say okay guys i've done this three or four times before these right. are the things that you want to be working on. Let's right. have a, a messaging day where we can all sit and focus on creativities. And then right. I'll write the map for you on how to execute for the next six months. Right. is incredibly valuable. And often an advisor can help you get there. Yeah. Um, on the other side, on the execution side, if you haven't got that team in place, an advisor is incredibly valuable to say early on, okay, my educated guess is these are the channels you're going to be using be it content, yeah. be it online, be it conferences, be it SDR, right. be it outbound. Right. And if these are the things that I recommend, these are what your first hires should be. Yeah. So either to work out how to build the team itself, or once you have the team, somebody to give the overall direction. If you, if you have a good advisor for a few hours a month, they can be incredibly valuable. Um, and it's much, 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 much cheaper and more efficient than, than hiring a, a top marketer before you feel you need one. Right. So I, I guess, you know, that that's a that's another question around world-class marketing being a scarce res resource in Israel, um, given that it's increasingly a critical resource in Israel. So how do we, I don't know, create some sort of school or create some sort of, you know, recruiting program from, I don't know, the government to just bring more you know, marketing knowledge and talent to this ecosystem? And, you know, is there an opportunity to kind of create um, some sort of on-ramp for aspiring marketers to get trained in, in all these best practices, sort of like ITC is doing for development and then, you know, sort of placing them in, in startup companies and, and larger companies. How can we also do that for marketing, sort of juice the overall Israeli ecosystem's you yeah. know, abilities? That, that is a complex question. Um, okay. I think we can probably have an entire podcast dedicated to just that. Okay. I want to start very quickly by outlining the challenge very, very quickly. It's yeah. not necessarily that there aren't good marketers in Israel. That's absolutely okay. not what I'm saying. There are lots okay. of good marketers in Israel. Okay. The demand and the open positions available for good marketers is three to five X mm. the availability of good marketers. 
Right. So I'm not saying it's a scarcity is problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm not there, saying that either. Yeah. There's lots of good marketers in Israel, but there are so many more startups looking for good marketers than there I are see. good marketers. Right. So, and this is an important distinction. It's not that yeah. Israel doesn't have the human capital. It does. There are right. so many exceptional marketers, marketers out there. There are just three to five times more companies looking. And therefore, I think the way that, that we, we try and solve this problem is by, in my AI. opinion, yeah, actually, no. <laughs> Although I'm a, a big believer in AI and tech, um, this is something which I'm going to go with a slightly different answer this time. Uh-huh. I think it's with mentorship. That's my opinion. And talking about advisory boards and mentors, I think that while big groups are very valuable and they allow you to share and learn from your peers, as I said earlier, my introvert, my antisocial mentality of me would would much rather have, if you have an experienced marketer, they take under their wing two, three, four junior marketers who are, you know, ambitious and know where they want to get to you know smart intelligent because there's loads of people out there yeah closer to the bottom of the the ladder and when it comes to their professional experience this could be either yeah. their junior or they've recently moved into the marketing domain from a different domain yeah and pairing them with great mentors um who just to grab a coffee every two months right and can I've, I've been in that position where you're sitting with somebody, you have spent a month or two marketing, and then you sit with somebody for a coffee, and they right. just ask all the right questions, and they right. shake things up. And sometimes it says, okay, you know what, I need to go away myself for a month or two, digest, rebuild, rethink, and then and have another one. Um, you know, I've done so many virtual coffees over Zoom in the last year. Yeah. And I find myself that I learn so much because it doesn't matter which side of the table I'm sitting here, yeah. either, uh, you know, helping out other people or asking other people for advice. Right. You're having those conversations which are purely strategic, purely theoretical. Yeah. And they, they make either because you're helping somebody else and you're constantly thinking, actually, we should be doing that ourselves. Or yeah. Yeah. we can, we can apply that. Why didn't I think of that? I, I did think of that. Right. Why didn't I do it yet? Right. Um, or going to somebody else and saying, okay, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what's working. Here's what's not. And they say, have you thought of ABC? And your brain just goes, pop. Like, yeah. well, that was so obvious. I, I didn't see it. Because when you're spending all day in the weeds, in the trenches, your attention is not drawn to, you know, there's something very, very interesting in, in evolution. And this yeah. is kind of my, my last geeky statement of the day. Yeah. When animals evolve, there's something called kind of like a local maxima. Yeah. Um, which means that they can evolve and evolve and evolve to a certain point. But if there's no advantage for them going a step beyond that, yeah, they will never go beyond that point. Mm-hmm. Other animals evolve in a more, com- I wouldn't say combative, I would say you know, in a more challenging environment right. where they're forced to evolve not just to this local maxima, but there's an anim- other animal that takes, let's say, a different path. So yeah. looking at the... I don't know, the, the ape family. Gorillas yeah. got stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger to yeah. the point where being stronger doesn't help the gorillas, but their advantage is they're the strongest. So yeah. they're kind of, they've reached a local maximum in evolution. Yeah. Humans, if we would have gone the strong route, we would have failed. So we took a different route and our brains evolved to get bigger and bigger and bigger. 
And that yeah. didn't have the same cap that gorillas got. So the gorillas were definitely better back then. But given yeah. enough time, we've been able to move past that. Okay. And the challenge is that gorillas will never become significantly smarter to the point of a human because there's no need for them to. But sometimes you need to take a step back and say, okay, well, if I don't have that core strength, if I don't have this local maxima and I'm willing to take a step backwards, I can reach a much, much higher level through another route. You know, let's go brains, let's go opposable thumbs instead of brute strength. And where does yeah. that take me? But sometimes you need to be sitting and having a coffee with somebody who's gone down that route and yeah. says, yeah, you're, what you're doing is optimized. Great. Right. But you're looking at 10% increases, 20% increases. If you want to hit 300, 400, 500%, you need to stop that, take a step back, even though it's working, and try something new. And that's one of the values that a mentor can bring. Awesome. So final question and, and sort of segueing from that, that geeky final statement. Oh, yes. Um, in terms of trying something new, given how crowded and how you know, uh, much content is out there and how everyone is sort of getting you know, into this digital marketing all at once because of COVID, what are you excited about in the next few years in terms of being able to stay ahead of the curve and, and stay different? Is there anything new that you're seeing right now that, that gives you hope or excitement as a marketer? Quite a lot. There's a lot of interesting things. Um, I want to be very, very clear. I'm not suggesting that people take advantage of, this, of the current global situation. I think that's the wrong word. Um, I think that the pandemic is fundamentally a bad thing. Um, and therefore saying, ah, and I've seen, by the way, one or two ads, you know, how to, how to, and possibly even VCs are saying like, how to take full advantage of the situation and, and rock your startup and, and whatever's going on. I, I think that's a little bit tactless because what's going on is unfortunately hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people dying around the world. Not to put a dampener on this podcast, but that is the fact. Millions. Um, yeah. Exactly. I think it's much more viable to say the following statement. The world not only has changed, but it is continuing to change. Yeah. And this creates a new environment in which to market that other people, the establishment, doesn't have experience with yet. We have seen so many companies, myself included, which relied on things like conferences and online for lead generation. Conferences did not exist. Online got so overcrowded that everyone's cost went up 3x and quality went down by half. So there is a new environment at play. I think that we have to find our feet quickly. And those companies that find our feet first are going to be the most successful. Um, we've run, for example, virtual summits. You know, I can tell you that in March last year, we had a physical summit planned, our first member summit for all our members and prospective right. members in San Francisco three weeks before we had to cancel it. Yeah. And we instantly shifted within a very very short amount of time all the goodie bags all the swag that we had planned we made yeah. it in a lovely branded box and sent to people we moved it online and it was you know compared to to other people out there we were able to shift within a couple of weeks and even days and still hold an incredible event and after that i've seen so much uh, remote work the ability to hire out of countries you know you're no longer restricted to hiring within Tel Aviv, it, it's, it's definitely something which should be seen as an enabler for future growth. Virtual summits, virtual conferences, I do not believe yet we of an industry have cracked how to do them. 
Yeah. In fact, every single time that a, a physical conference organizer comes to me and wants to do a virtual summit, I sigh. Because yeah. what they're thinking is a couple of webinars. Right. It's not the same. You don't have the same level of attention. You don't have the same right. level of interaction. We right. haven't worked out how to do that as an industry yet. And those companies right. that crack that first are going to naturally have an advantage. I think we actually need to move off online ads and LinkedIn ads and Facebook outreach. I think that that is just not the way forward through the next generation. I think also, and this is something which most people, again, do not agree with me on, content needs to change. People do not want to sit at their computer reading ebooks and white papers like they used to because they're spending all day staring at their screen and that isn't going to be changing anytime soon. So we need to move away from that towards perhaps podcasts or, or other forms of audio that don't involve staring at a screen. Yeah. Um, but I think that this creates, like with any revolution, this creates an opportunity for those companies which are moving faster to capitalize on and find what the next best practices are because the current best practices are thrown out the window. And we found a few, but we are continuing to experiment on a daily basis to see what we can make work. Shmuley, this has been incredibly insightful and useful and I really appreciate your time and your energy. So hopefully, uh, hopefully our listeners will as well. My pleasure. Thank you so much for your time.